0: Hello and welcome to NER Out Loud, a podcast series from the New England Review. I'm Kate Sadoff.
1: And I'm Andrew Grossman. And today we are pleased to present a piece of fiction from our latest issue, NER Volume 43, Number 2, titled The Ladybugs by A.E. Colts.
0: In this episode, you will hear Colts read roughly the first half of her piece aloud, followed by an interview about her process of creation, the sacred and the profane, and the mice in her basement.
1: Holtz is a writer from the Low Country of South Carolina. Her fiction has appeared in The Stinging Fly and The Master's Review, Volume 5, edited by Amy Hempel, and was selected as a winner of the Tennessee Williams Fiction Contest by Claire Vey Watkins. She currently lives in the mountains of Western Massachusetts, where she is working on a novel.
2: The ladybugs. They arrived all at once. It was a November morning. Outside it was white, not with snow, but with a mood that made it difficult to see the relationships between things. Kate looked at the small colony of satellite dishes, strewn across the roof of the building behind hers, and the narrow strips of cloud stretching out above them, and could not understand how such things could inhabit her world at once. Even those objects which she normally associated with one another, like the patchy grass Upturned milk crates and the cold hardy fig tree planted by the previous tenant, which together constituted her building's pathetic little yard, refused to add up to a meaningful whole. It had dipped to thirty the night before, and on the fire escape below hers, the flower pot where the rain had collected and where her neighbours disposed of their cigarette butts had frozen over. It was the sight of this flower pot alone filled not with petunias or impatience or decomposing plant matter, but instead with their material and spiritual opposite that kept her from taking up smoking again. Vessels, some authority inside her, believed, are meant to be filled with what can be transfigured. A ladybug landed on her wrist. A blessing was her first thought. She'd been reading about the Desert Mothers, fourth- and fifth-century monastics who sought God in the wilderness of Egypt, Syria, and Palestine upon renouncing all worldly pleasures and possessions. It occurred to her that her perception of ladybugs had not progressed beyond the perception of them she'd possessed as a child, so that they'd never acquired any meaning for her beyond their symbolic one or their unconscious one, which precedes and transcends the rational element. How refreshing, she thought, to transcend the rational for a while, to perceive something as yet unspoiled by the profane. Moments later, another buzzed over, then settled on the screen of her laptop in the center of a paragraph about the Apopothemata patrum, or the sayings of the Desert Fathers, which was, naturally, the name of the book in which the sayings of the Desert Mothers were contained. The ladybugs were not quite read but orange, the color of those dispirited slices of tomato people were always removing from their sandwiches. The thought put her in mind of her mother, who was always lamenting the loss of the tomatoes of her childhood, the taste of which, she claimed, was better than candy. Her mother's father grew them in the backyard in oil drums, and every evening for the entire summer, she and her six siblings would make themselves tomato and mayonnaise sandwiches for dessert. The ladybug on the screen lifted its spotted armor, revealing lacy wings and, beneath them, its black abdomen, which was the ladybug's nakedness, dark and vulnerable beneath its clothes. The story of the tomato had become a seminal one for her. Her friends were always bemoaning the decline in upward mobility institutional inequities, and the truly inhumane mountains of debt they all found themselves laboring under. But she was concerned with the loss of her mother's tomato, which scientists had recently explained in their way. According to the study her mother had forwarded her, with the subject line, I'm not crazy, when scientists mapped the genome of the supermarket tomato and compared it to its wild relative. They found that the modern cultivar, which had been bred incessantly over the past five decades for qualities like size and a faster ripening rate, was missing thousands of genes, including those which determine color and taste, or in other words, beauty. I'm not surprised, she responded, as the finding seemed entirely self-evident to her, the story of the tomatoes being just another version of a very old story about the violence domestication does to souls. She'd had a lot of time to think about this, about the violence that's been done to her soul since getting laid off from her job as a copy editor at a major newspaper three weeks prior in the worst job market in decades, which also happened to be the same week her closest friend followed a non-profit job to Los Angeles because it was a good opportunity, though she knew the real reason her friend had moved was because of a long-held fantasy about living on a street lined with jacarandas. In the fantasy, her friend wore no undergarments and watered her garden in a white linen dress while carrying a straw hat in her hand. Another ladybug landed on the sofa beside her. She looked toward the direction it had come from and saw a dozen more huddled in the top left corner of the living room window, which was narrow and tall, stretching nearly to the top of the twelve-foot ceiling. She looked at the ladybug on her wrist, which began making its way along the pale, private side of her forearm, and realized she could still feel a tiny hint of the magic she felt upon being anointed with one as a child, which was the magic of feeling seen, not by the ladybug, but by the universe, of which they were both a part. She couldn't remember the last time she thought about this, about being seen by the universe, but it transported her to the wild of her childhood, where she'd spent vast stretches of time alone, nestled in the crooks of trees, or tangling herself in the root systems revealed by the eroding river bank, or in her childhood bedroom, when she would have one way conversations with God, then spend the next day searching the landscape for his responses, which were always clever and enigmatic and frequently metaphorical. Once she complained about her sensitive nature and frequent weeping for reasons she could never logically ascertain, and then for the next three days it rained and rained and rained. This was the first time she realized God could be funny. During this period, one of her favorite things to do was to stare at small objects for long stretches of time, like a centipede or clover blossom or the magnificent multifaceted seed pod of the sweetgum tree, in order to see how close she could come to truly seeing it. If done long enough, the details of the tiny object would expand to appear like nations and of themselves. The legs of the centipede, not only parts, but made of parts, which she was sure, even though she couldn't see that closely, were made of parts too. Afterwards, she would look up from her hand and feel as if she were drowning in complexity and abundance. When she was drowning, she could feel the truth of the universe inside her little body, which she understood was the only way it could be known. It occurred to her that this mode of inquiry could be useful to her now, in the isolation of her 650-square-foot apartment, in which she'd begun to feel a little bereft. In the evenings, her boyfriend would come home, but he was always so exhausted he wouldn't want to talk. Luke spent his days performing cataract surgeries, sitting on a little stool, bent over human eyes with his sterile implements, which required a prodigious degree of equanimity and concentration. To cut into the eyes, he used a knife with a diamond tip that he carried to work each day in a small, discreet leather case. Once, he'd left the case on his bedside table while going out for a run, and she'd used it to cut through a handful of cold, green grapes. She had pretended each one was an eye. she felt badly about this, but she desperately wanted to know this part of him, which she would never get to see. She thought she could learn something by pretending to be him, but she had only learned that it was difficult to cut cleanly into something so small, even with a diamond. When they first started dating, she'd watched several videos of cataract surgery on YouTube and felt a little jolt of delight each time they suctioned out the milky film. She followed the ladybug roving across her screen to a painting of Sincletica of Alexandria, the most famous of the desert mothers, or at least the most well-recorded. Upon the death of her parents, Sincletica pledged the entirety of her vast inheritance to the poor and moved with her blind sister, to the family crypt outside of town. Nowhere did it say whether the blind sister was consulted about this, though it did seem like a very unsuitable place for a blind person to live. The ladybug paused on the saint's shimmering breast, as if it sensed something there, then crawled across the saint's expressionless face, which was reportedly very beautiful, several of the articles she'd read had said. This did not surprise her, as being beautiful was the thing women were most often remembered for, second to suffering, and third to passing as a man for years.
0: That was the first half of The Ladybugs by Liz Colts, read by the author. Read the rest of this piece in our print edition of NER 43.2, which you can order on the New England Review website. In addition to hearing her read this story, we had the pleasure of speaking with Colts about it.
3: My name's A.E., but you can call me Liz uh, Colts. I grew up in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, Um, so in the Lowcountry down there, if you're familiar with it. Um, and then uh, went to Boston College. I was a journalist in New York City for a while, and then abandoned all that and moved to Wyoming and got a MFA in fiction there, um, where I worked with some really amazing writers, the late, great Brad Watson, and Joy Williams, and Radowit Lapsher, and Um And yeah, and I live in the Berkshires now, I am the mother of a one-year-old. I'm working on a novel and um, tinkering with short stories here and there.
0: Andrew and I were reading The Ladybugs um, at the same time in the office, and we just looked over to each other and were like, wow, absolutely in love with it. It reads almost like a stream of consciousness. There, there's such intentionality with every detail. Each moving part fits in with so many other elements in the story. So I felt like every time we reread the piece, we were finding new connections and it was so rewarding to come back to. In creating a piece with so many complementary elements, what was your entry point? Did you envision the full arc of the story or was it a slower process?
2: Yeah, so the story with this piece is
3: it's actually based on um, some real life ladybugs um, that started inhabiting my office about three years ago. And they would come in in the fall, literally out of nowhere, there'd be like 25 ladybugs in my office all of a sudden. And then various generations of them would stay through the spring. Actually, we moved recently and crazily there are ladybugs in my new office as well um, so I knew that I wanted to write about the experience of sharing a space with them and I knew it would be a short story but I didn't really know what form it would take beyond that um, and what the story would be like and I kind of just had this germinating in the back of my head for like two years uh, and then when I finally sat down to write the story the first seven pages just poured out of me and I don't think they've been changed much at all since their initial draft. Like, I didn't I didn't have a full or clear idea of what the arc of the story was going to be like. That just sort of became clear to me in the writing of the story. But then after I wrote those first seven pages, it was really clear to me that, you know, the central tension of the story was going to be between the two different ways of seeing the ladybugs, um, which I also see as representative or symbolic of you know, two different ways of being in the world, um, which is one in which we view everything through like a profane or a secular lens and the other in which we view everything through a sacred lens, meaning like recognizing its mystery and inherent value. So yeah, but none of that was clear until I really sat down and started putting sentences onto the page.
1: Another stylistic element we were amazed by was how unique and impactful every sentence in this piece was there's hardly a clause or even a word that feels unscrupulously chosen. This is something we similarly noticed in your flash fiction piece, Egg. Could you tell us a little bit about your editing process in making these pieces?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, To be fully transparent, I actually don't spend much time at all thinking about the whole. I really just focus on the sentence level and probably to my detriment at times, but I do have this sense that if I write out of fidelity to my unconscious, which I see is like the true author of all my work, like me, my conscious mind is just the editor. Um, the whole sort of takes care of itself. So I sort of have this idea that the whole already exists somewhere deep in the back of my mind. Um, and by um, working really hard at the sentence level, I can sort of tease it out of myself. Um, and I also think that's where, for me, most of the pleasure of writing comes from. It's just like, just the sentence, right? Um, so putting a sentence onto a page and, and making sure it, it feels right to me is where I get a lot of pleasure. So, um, so yeah, that's where I tend to focus my attention. Um, but I will say, like, after I finish a draft, I do find it really helpful to um, get some distance from a story. So for me, that means not reading it or looking at it for maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, maybe years um and at that point the story becomes sort of something distinct from myself right it's almost like a postpartum period so like after you have a baby um, and they're out of your body it takes time for them to emerge into this human this entity that's totally separate from you um and so I really need to get to that place with my story um in order to see it in full right and to understand Um, To see the places in which I was just being clever and not loyal to the story, right? Or things that might need to shift or things that I can play up and things that I can turn down. So distance is like a critical part of my, I would say my editing process for sure.
0: Is there anything that ended up on the cutting room floor that you agonized over?
3: Not really. I mean, I think I agonized over cuts when I was younger. Like you write this sentence and you think it's so perfect. And even if it doesn't fit in the story, you're like, it has to stay. Um, But I don't have a hard time with that anymore. I think because like aesthetically, I value tightness and precision. So there's a sense in which any cut is really just getting me closer to my goal. So like anytime someone's like, I think you can cut this. I'm like, yes, I'm gonna cut it. Um and it just feels it feels good. It's like sweeping a floor, just like getting all the debris out of the way.
0: The editor for NER, Carolyn, told us that part of your revision on this piece included giving your main character a name. So we were just curious about that decision. What did it feel like to uh, give your character a name for the revision and why did you not initially include a name?
3: Yeah, um, I don't I don't know why I, I leave out names all the time. And I think it's maybe <laughs> out of laziness that i just start writing a story and like i don't want to stop to think about what this character's name is um and in a sense sometimes i uh i feel like so close to like this is a very close third this story and i feel so close to a particular consciousness um that that naming the character almost like makes them separate from myself and so i think maybe like it felt weird when I was working on the story to name the character, um, but then by the time you know, uh, you know, by the time it it um, was accepted by the New England Review, um, I had had enough distance from it that I was like, okay, like this person, this character can be separate from me. <laughs> um, I can give I can give her give her a name, and it really was because I I felt like Luke needed a name for a long time. He was just the boyfriend. Um, and I, so I, I named him Luke and then uh, Carolyn was like, well, if Luke has a name, I sort of feel like, you know, the, the main character here needs a name. And so so then I named her. Um, yeah.
1: We were curious about the use of the Desert Mothers. Could you tell us a little bit more about them and how they became such a crucial element of this piece? Were they a personal fascination for you prior to writing this story?
3: Yeah, I think they were definitely a personal fascination. I I mean, I've been reading the mystics um, from various religious traditions for a really long time. Um, and um, lately, like in the last five or so years of my life, I've been reading almost exclusively uh, female mystics who are historically overlooked for obvious reasons. Um, And so I I just happened to be reading about the Desert Mothers, but then also the work of the Desert Mothers um, around the time I was writing this. And we actually don't know very much about them um, because, you know, this is a sad thing, uh, you know, when it comes to um, historical scholarship about women. Right. Like if you neglect, if you don't think, um, you know, the lives of women hold as much value as the lives of men for thousands of years, like a thousand years later, you're not going to know very much about (laughs) the women that existed in in that time period. So that's sort of what happened with the desert mothers. Um, There's a lot of mystery around them, but we do have these sayings, right. Um, And we do know about a handful of them um, that were, you know, uh, a bit more famous than the others, but yeah. So I just happened to be reading about them and um, I just kind of threw them onto the page because they were in my mind um, and it was really only after I did that that it became clear to me how well they resonated with the ladybugs on a symbolic level. But I think also how well they embody um, the tension that Kate experiences in the story, which is the tension between interior life, which I see is synonymous with spiritual life and mystical life, and then also the demands and expectations of society and social existence, which is by nature a... Taming and domesticating, and you could even say colonizing force because it commands fidelity to the whole, right, and to the institutions that prop up the whole. Um, and that can only be won through the suppression of individuality and inner voice, which, in the eyes of the desert mothers and and the eyes of most mystics, is the voice of God, right? So that was why the desert mothers had to leave the city and go into the desert in order to hear. God speaking to them, right? They had to return to the wild. And actually, in many religious traditions, sort of um, like in the American South, where I'm from, the uh, enslaved peoples, there was a a tradition by which young men and women would become initiated into the church, right? Into the religious community. And the way in which they did this was they were forced to go into the wild, right? Into the wilderness. And this is this is, um, you know, after the war, um, once once people were free, but they had to go into the wilderness um, and find God. Right. Um, And then return to the community and community and talk about their experiences.
0: The style and setting of this piece work so well together. As we said, it develops very naturally through the main character's interiority and by existing largely within the home. Do you think you could speak to how you approach gender in relationship to domesticity, especially in a way that skews some older or more cliched tropes?
3: Well, I mean, I think, first of all, we live in a culture that in which the domestic is greatly devalued. And this is precisely because it's a feminine sphere. And I mean, this both in the spiritual sense and evolutionarily. So evolutionarily speaking, while men were out hunting or fighting, right? Engaging in some form of violence, whether out of necessity or otherwise. It was the women who stayed in one place and who engaged in the sacred activities of growing food and preparing food and making medicines and tending to children. And it's out of these activities that all of human culture emerged. So in a sense, the domestic is the birthplace of all human culture, but in our contemporary culture, which is sort of ruled by a deeply repressed fear of the feminine, Um, we've been taught to devalue it and to assume that everything else, that everything of value exists outside the home, right? So as men or as women, right? We've been taught to value the bigness of social and political and economic life and um, to devalue the smallness of daily life, right? Of everyday life. Um, of domestic life, even though it's the smallness of domestic life that really is the raw material for for our existence. So in my eyes, this is actually the great failure of contemporary feminism, which seeks to elevate women and patriarchal systems without seeking to elevate feminine values and the lives of every human individual. So, you know, this is also why I think so much of contemporary feminism is informed by internalized misogyny, and also why uh, we've seen so little progress in so many critical areas of human and and non-human existence. Um, So it's not biological gender that I'm exploring here or gender as a social construct, but gendered consciousness, right? So we can either view the world, whether or not we're a man or a woman or a non-binary person, we can either view the world um, in a purely logical and, in purely logical and rational terms, right, through a secular lens, or we can see it as a place full of, um, you know, down to the smallest detail, full of mystery and full of wonder and deserving of all. And this is, of course, the wisdom of childhood, right? But we become increasingly estranged from this as we, are made to uh, grow up and become productive members of society, right? So, of course, it's only when Kate loses her job and is forced to kind of leave that world, right? Not by choice. She was forced to, right? She got laid off and she finds herself like in this really quiet space inside her home with these ladybugs that she is able to access that wisdom
1: again. So shifting gears a little bit, there's such an interesting portrait of masculinity in the character of Luke, in which he's not an overtly malicious figure, and yet he's deeply unlikable. He conveys a softer form of masculine violence, uh, violence not of the body, but of the spirit. I was curious, what was your intention in portraying this form of masculinity?
3: Yeah, I mean, poor Luke. I mean, I think in, in a sense he's been dealt an unfair hand because we're deprived of any access to his interiority in the story. Um, and, and I actually see him sort of going along with what I just said is not as representative of masculinity per se, but of masculine consciousness, right? Which is the consciousness that dominates contemporary life. So it's a way of, uh, of seeing and being in the world that is actually a form of blindness. So again, it's not biological gender or gender as a social construct that I'm exploring, but gendered consciousness. And Luke, I guess you know he could have been a woman um, or a non-binary person, but he's he's representative of um, our overdeveloped masculine consciousness that sees things purely in rational and logical and profane terms, um, and it's also a way of seeing that uh, that privileges juxtaposition and difference over relationship and connection. And so I really love the term that you use, the softer form of violence, and I and I think you're right, but it's also this softer form of violence that leads to all other forms of violence, right? So the reason Luke seeks to get rid of the ladybugs, exterminate them, um, you know, or whatever, right, just get rid of them, is because he fails to connect with them in some way, right? He fails to see commonality between himself and the ladybugs. He fails to form a relationship with them in the way that Kate is able to. Um, he fails to recognize their value, right? And it's only at that point that he then desires to get rid of them.
1: There are a litany of references to sight throughout this story, from Luke's job as an eye doctor, to the blind desert mothers, to the way they close their eyes during sex. These often occur around discussions of meeting and its absence. How do you see the interplay of sight and meaning working in your story?
0: Yeah, I
3: mean, I think again, this was my unconscious at work, um, but I do think that I was thinking a lot, and I do think a lot about um, perception and meaning and um, and subjectivity, and really about how meaning is exclusively a function of the subjective, right? So. Um, We, you know, there's the common saying, like, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, like, but so is disgust, so is contempt, so is ugliness, right? So it's not something that's in the essence of an object that leads us to see it in a particular way, but something in ourselves. Like I I grew up in the South and there's cockroaches everywhere in the summers. So like at night, if you like are walking down the street and you like shine a light, you can just see them like going back and forth across the sidewalk. And um, like most people, like I've been um, conditioned to respond to the cockroach and by, by like, you know, shuddering and moving away. But I often, you know, lately I've been stopping myself and I'm like, okay, so if this cockroach was like royal blue or magenta and sparkly, like would I regard it in the same way that I do, right? um so is it really something in the cockroach just making me regard it in this particular way or is it something in myself right so another story actually this was not something that happened recently that made me think about this so I was in my basement and I saw a little baby mouse roaming around and it was clearly a small like a, a young mouse um and then I saw another one and I was like oh gosh it probably means there's a nest somewhere in the basement um and I Googled, you know, like mouse nest and basement. And um, really, because I was curious, I know that mother mice will sometimes remove some of their babies from their nest in order to ensure the survival of the remaining ones if they have limited resources. Um, And, or sometimes, you know, mice can just roam from the nest. So, you know, there were these mice and I felt like I needed to get involved and I was like, should I remove you know, are they grown up? Should I remove them from the house and put them, you know, outside in the wild where there's more resources? And of course, you know, when I Googled like, Matt, like two baby mice in basement, everything came back, like call the exterminator ASAP. You have an infestation. Like this is unsanitary. There are disease carrying rodents. Um, and there were actually like some websites that were like advising me to find the nest and then murder everything (laughs) in it. And I wasn't going to do that. So instead I just sort of um, observed the mice and I realized that they were looking for each other. They were making these little sounds and were on different sides of the basement. And I ended up witnessing their reunion and it was the most profound experience. So literally these two little mice came together and embraced and like they put their tails around each other and their noses in each other's fur and they stayed like this little unit for no less than 3 hours like they would not separate and i kept going down there and they were just hugging each other and sadly they both passed overnight you know on their own they were obviously not ready to leave the nest and their mother may have abandoned it or something and you know, after that, I did, you know, clean my basement and make sure everything was sanitary. But, like, if I had, you know, immediately seen these little babies as, you know, um, disgusting rodents who were, you know, um, making my my basement an unsanitary place, like, I would have never witnessed that incredible moment. Um, and it changed, like, entirely changed the way I see mice right? Like they're incredibly social creatures. Like they love one another. So yeah, that's um, something I think about a lot.
1: That was Liz Colts, author of The Ladybugs. You can find her story and others in NER volume 43.2. Available for purchase on our website at www.nereview.com.
0: Check out our previous episode on Lebanese playwrights Milia Ayash and Amina Hassan. They talk about their play Splits Kin, which also appears in NER Volume 43, Number 2, in our feature on contemporary writing from Lebanon.
1: This episode of NER Out Loud was written, edited, and produced by Andrew Grossman and Kate Sadoff. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth, and all other music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions.
0: If you liked what you heard, please write, review, and subscribe to the podcast online, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. And remember to subscribe to the New England Review so you don't miss our latest issues.
1: From NER Out Loud,
0: I'm Kate Sadoff.
1: And I'm Andrew Grossman. Thank Thank you you for for listening. listening.